You gotta live your life the way Mel Brooks said, you know, relax. None of us are getting out of here alive. You're listening to Hawk Talk, a podcast all about the origin stories of the most interesting people in the world. Today, you know our guests as famous athletes, authors, and entrepreneurs, but there's so much more to the story. Let's get into today's interview with your host, Eric Huberman. You're listening to Hawk Talk with our guest, Anthony Scaramucci. Thank you for joining us today. Hey, it's a pleasure to be here. I appreciate it. Thanks, Eric. So got to dive right in, you know, as we were talking about a little bit before, you obviously, I'm guessing about four or five years old, you're in a full suit on the playground trading stocks. Like that's boss how- baby. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I, was, I was boss baby. Um, yeah. <laughs> you know, Alec Baldwin is going to do the voiceover for me when I get older. But no, no. We can I, all listen, hope for that. <laughs> listen, I was at five years old. I was at the Merriman Kindergarten in Port Washington. My father was the crane operator in the town, and my mother was a housewife, and there was a local grocery store called Bohack, and there was an A&P. You're probably not old enough to remember the A&P, but that's where my uncle worked. My other uncle had a motorcycle shop in the town, which was a block away from my house. And so there, there I was at age five, clueless about the world, but living a very, in my mind, sheltered and very pampered middle-class American experience. You know, the air conditioners were being put in on Memorial Day. They were coming out on Labor Day. And if it was too hot or too cold, too bad. And we had one twin bicycle that my brother and I used to, like, try to kill each other over. We shared the same room. My dad was a strict guy. You know, I mean, he was blue-collar, chain-smoker. You know, it was that kind of a life. But I mean, let me tell you something. I got very lucky. I was a product of a good public school system. Mm-hmm. The town of Port Washington had the largest sand deposit in North America. Not to give you a geology lesson, but you're talking about origin sure. stories. So the Ice Age, the glacier descended, it mowed down the Catskill Mountains. They were taller than the Himalayas. Wow. And when, when it receded, the Remnants of it were Long Island, Block Island, the elbow of Cape Cod, Martha's Vineyard, Nantucket. That's all remnants of the Ice Age. And so in the peninsula on the north shore of Long Island, in the peninsula of Port Washington, at the base of the peninsula, there was a gigantic sand embankment. Italian, Welsh, and Irish immigrants mined that sand for 95 years, 1905 to 2000. And, you know, my dad started there in 1958, and he left there in 2000, 42 years, retired at age 65, and that's the story. But, you know, that that town also has a large pocket of affluence, and so I was the beneficiary of a great public school system. And so, yeah, so first off, did you spend a lot of time at the beach? If you got all that sand, like, was that a big part of your childhood? Yeah, a thousand percent, because we had, we had Bar Beach, which was right in the town. And then obviously when I got older, when I had to drive the car, we had Jones Beach on the south shore of Long Island. And, you know, that was a lot of fun as well. You know, I mean, no, I, and I still live on Long Island. I have a house in Southampton. I have one here in Manhasset, which is two miles from the house I grew up in. But we're surrounded by water here. And so, I have, you know, my dad had a boat. Yep. Uh, he was a hunter. He was a fisher. I learned how to water ski on the back of that boat. I had more than one day on that boat over the course of my upbringing. Boat can take uh, you a we, long way. We were sheltered. You know, my, my dad said, you guys got to go to college because I'm working with my hands and I'm tied into the union and I'm tied into the economy. And, you know, in the early 70s, he was doing great. In the mid 70s, he got his work cut back. We felt it at home. Yeah. And then he started doing well again, and they got cut back again in the late 70s during the oil embargo. They were rationing gas even for the crane. I mean, it was sort of crazy. So 
Yeah. But he said, you guys got to go to college. So my dad was like, all right, we're all going to college. And so where are we going? Well, are you from long? Where are you from originally, Eric? I'm from Ojai, small town near LA, little hippie town. All right. So, you know, you would probably appreciate this. There's got to be a local college near there. Yes. CW Post, which was the cereal magnet. He left his estate in Old Brookville to Long Island University, became CW Post College. So it was five miles from my house, maybe seven miles from my house. My pops was like, okay, well, you're going to CW Post College. I'm like, okay, great. We're going to CW Post College. <laughs> then one day he comes home from work. And you had to be at my dad's dinner table at 5.15 or you got the daylight speed out of you. The only exception was if you were on, you know, we were on sports. I was playing football. That was okay because he obviously knew he had practice, but yeah. no practice. He was home 5.15 had to be at his dinner table. So he comes home one night. We're waiting for him. Comes through the door, takes his greenie off, which was that like uniform that he wore with the operator crane. Throws it downstairs, goes take a shower. He comes to the table. He turns to my older brother and says, well, forget about CW Post. You're going to a place called Tufts. And my brother looks at him and is like, okay, you know, where is that? I mean, I've never, never heard of it before. And so my brother is a couple of years older than me. He had that phone book back in the day of the Barron's College. I mean, they still print yeah. it, but you can get most of the stuff online. So he's flipping through the book. And dad, how do you spell it? And my father says, T-O-U-G-H-S, Tufts. <laughs> so my brother gets there. He's like, man, there's no Tufts there. And he finally gets that. That's somebody's last name. It's T-U-F-T-S. It's not Tufts <laughs> like you're tough. And so that's been a family joke for 40 years. So why? Well, my father was, uh, you know, at that point in his life, he started with the crate. He was weighing trucks. And if you know anything about concrete, you have to mix the sand with crushed aggregate to make the concrete. And so the crushed aggregate was coming in from Connecticut. And there was a guy named Billy Tommaso that had, he was a big patron of Tufts University. Mm -hmm. And he told my dad, I'm going to help your two sons get into Tufts University. And that's where they should go to school. It'll be less parochial in the local place. It's, it's, a, it's a broader university and it's located in Boston. And so, you know, the Jews think they have like the license on guilt, like they own Boardwalk and Park Place, but you never seen guilt like an Italian mother. My mother flipped out. She didn't want to see I'm Gilt. Jewish. My wife's Italian, so I've seen right, it so all. There you go. So your kids are going to be really <laughs> yeah. poor kids. But, but anyway, you know, you, you know, there's just there's more literary people, you know, that write about Jewish guilt. But the Italians, trust me, I mean, these people are like pathological. So my mother didn't want us to go. It was a big fight in the house. My brother went up to Tufts. My father was like Henry Ford that way. He said to me, I could go to any school I wanted as long as it was Tufts. Yeah. So I applied to two safety schools. I got into Tufts, went followed my brother up there. And now I am actually in a totally different environment, Eric, yeah. because I'm out of that blue collar area. I'm out of that blue collar neighborhood. I didn't realize we didn't have any money. I thought we were fine. I mean, you know, I'm watching these kids drive around in their BMWs. They've got credit cards in their wallets. And I'm like, whoa. I mean, this is like sort of crazy. And I had the epiphany. I said, okay, I got to hustle. I got to get my stuff together to see if I can do well here and, and then progress in life. Yep. So that's sort of a probably longer than you wanted, but that's how no, I that's got exactly my, what I wanted. So that, that, I am that's curious. how I got myself together. One other seminal moment, I think very important for me, because I was a Long Island Guido. I had the gold chains. I had the red Camaro that I bought with all my uh, summer savings. I was driving up and down the Meadowbrook Parkway to Jones Beach. You know, I had the power booster in the car. I had my hair blown back like Tony Manero from Saturday Night Live. I was doing push-ups in the parking lots of these local gotta discos. Got to get a pump. Yeah. yeah, and so I was a vagrant lunatic. 
And in April of 1982, my pops handed me a check. And I said, what's that, Dad? I opened up the envelope, and it was a check for $10,000. And he had some kind of life insurance that was tied to his union. He had a cash value of the life insurance, and he traded in the life insurance. And he gave me $10,000. He said, you know, I can't really pay for your college, but I'm giving you $10,000 to get you started. You know, and in college at that point, it's probably like 24, 25,000 room board. And that's when I had my seminal epiphany. I was like, oh my God, I'm a complete jerk off driving around in my car, chasing Irish, Italian, Catholic girls, you know, all over the place. I got to get my, you know, what together. And so I promised him that I would go to Tufts and I would work super hard. And I wouldn't let his $10,000 check go to waste. That was a big moment in my life. Everybody has like a few shots to the side of the head. It was the realization that my dad was giving me money and he was foregoing his life insurance for his family to help me get my education. So that was enough for me. I said, I'm going to drop all my nonsense and really try to take TUFTS seriously. And so that's what happened. And I did well there. And then I made my way to Harvard. What did you study at Tufts? I, studied, I was in economics major. I wanted to be a business major. There were no business courses there. So I studied economics, mm-hmm. a little art school. I was a minor in Greek and Roman classics, which I really loved. I mean, that was a very seminal stuff on human behavior yeah. from the ancient Greeks and from the ancient Romans, which actually, you know, helped me out a lot in life. You know, you read the Iliad and the Odyssey. Those are two good manuals for human nature. So then I got very short-sighted, and I would say the early part of my career, I was somewhat risk-averse, which is sort of crazy now given where I ended up with. I was like, okay, I got to do something, make some dough. I got to pay back the school debt. And so I was reading Time Magazine, which, you know, was actually very popular back in the 80s. And there was an article in Time Magazine that said that they were paying first-year lawyers on Wall Street, they were paying them $65,000 a year. I said, wow, I said, my dad's making like $34,000 a year. So I can study to go to law school. I come out of law school, I'm going to make double what my dad makes and I'm 25 years old. I'm going to law school. I mean, that's it. This is my career path. I'd like to tell you it was more thought out than that. I would like to tell you that it was more strategic and scientific and I was some kind of genius, but I wasn't. I was just looking for an exit strategy from school that where I would land at a job that I would pay back my loans. But I think that's so, that's the so that's what like, happened. You know, I ended up going to law school. And I think I hear that story a lot with what you you know very successful people. Like it looks like this amazing decision that was super calculated, but you're like most decisions are made quickly. Like ah, just this seems to make sense right now. I'm going to go for it. And when you look back, it could be that pivotal decision, which it obviously was for you. So I'm going to recommend somebody to you. I'm going to recommend something that you should read. You should read the Psychology of Money by Morgan Housel. It's coming out September the 8th. He's a colleague of mine. He's a brilliant guy. Arguably the best book I've read on money, and I've read a lot of books. Uh, but that was yeah, my I can see behind you. Read on money. Yeah, I'm a big reader because when you grow up like I did, if you don't teach yourself, if you don't become an autodidact, you can't get to where you want to go. You know, you just don't have enough people around you from a mentoring point of view. Yeah. But he says in the book something that it shouldn't be left on anybody and it should have great significance for people. A lot of luck in this thing. Yep. You can choose your parents. I didn't choose my parents. Right. You choose your family of origin or the location of your birth or where you went to school. Your parents did all that for you. And so the fact that we're born in America and you were born on the West Coast, I was born here on the North Shore of Long Island. Those are miracles. And so you got to start out the day with great gratitude for those miracles in your life. 
Totally. But, uh, and no matter no matter where you're starting, whether you're starting with a blue collar family or starting in an affluent family, it really doesn't matter. You know, yep. you're here in America. You're able to pursue your dream, and and at that time there was a little bit less income disparity, Eric. And so somebody like my father could actually afford the middle class. That very same person today, that very same union, that very same job. First of all, that sand mine is now a golf course, so that job doesn't exist. Yep. But if it did exist, it'd be that 26, 27% reduction in real income yep. under the inflation adjustment. And so it's tragic what's going on in the country in terms of the transition from aspirational working class people to desperational working class people in 35 or so years. Yeah, no, I agree. I mean, what we've seen, yeah, we've seen inflation at normal rates without any increase in average wages for 30 right. years, 40 years. Right. Yeah, and so, I mean, that's that's a big dilemma. So, but, you know, look, I mean, I'm a product of good luck, as okay. are you and other people. So here I am, I got the education, I applied to Harvard, the provost of Tufts, who's still alive, was an excellent squash player, had two hips replaced, now he's 87, he's living in an assisted living up in Winchester, Massachusetts. I try to visit him twice a year. And it turned out that he was he was playing squash with a few of the Harvard Law School professors. And that helped me out a lot. Okay, relationships and luck are everything. He wrote my recommendation. Tufts was two and a half, three miles away from Harvard. Yep. I got into Harvard and I said, okay, great. I'm going to go to Harvard. I went to Harvard Law School. And this is another classic origin story, right? He said, I got no money. Yep. So I go over to the Harvard Law School with $250 in cash to give them my deposit to go there in September. I've, ex- I've been accepted in February of 1986. I got, I got accepted on Ronald Reagan's 75th birthday, February 6th. And so now I'm over there giving them the money. And then I asked the woman for the recruitment book. She said, no problem. Take the recruitment book. You're going to be here next year. No problem. So now I have the phone book of all the law firms that are recruiting at Harvard. Okay. Yep. I took the book, I went to the Harvard Law School library, and I got the alumni directory. Yep. I said, okay, I got to go to work on Wall Street. That's where the money is. Okay, I didn't realize that that meant, you know, there were midtown offices and there were, this. I thought that was like, you know, you had to go to Wall Street. So I yep. started on Wall Street, I opened up the book, I said, this guy works on Wall Street, Maiden Lane. Yep. Okay, I'm going to go down Wall Street. And so I had a list of every law firm that worked on Wall Street that recruited at Harvard. And the names of the Harvard alums that were in those law firms. Yep. So now you got to set the scene here. It's 1986. You can take the train into the city and you can walk in to the building, press the elevator, and go up to the (laughs) no security, no pass. No security, no nothing. It's pre 9 11, pre everything, right? So now in the 28th floor reception at one Wall Street. So that's the first place I'm going, right? Because I'm starting. At the first place, I go up the elevator, I see the receptionist, I got my, you know, little polyester suit on, hair's all cut, and I got the little tight guido tie. I'm here to see, you know, Worthington Bascom the 37th or something, right? And do you have an appointment? I said, no, I don't have an appointment. Are you here soliciting? We don't have any solicitors here. Well, I'm sort of soliciting. I I just got accepted to the Harvard Law School. I just graduated from Tufts. Worthington Bascom was class of 62 from Harvard. And, you know, the university gave me his name. I was hoping he could spend two minutes with me. So now this guy comes out. He is right out of, like, Central Cast. He's got the suspenders on. He's got the glasses. He's got the gray hair. I mean, he's, like, right out of Central Cast. I go into his office. He said, well, what can I do for you? I said, well, I need a job. I, I said, sorry, I have no money. 
I said, my father helped me a little bit. I got some debt from Tufts. I've got really no money and I'll do anything this summer. You tell me what you need me to do, I'll do it. He says, okay, he goes, well, we can hire you as a paralegal. We'll give you uh, $8 an hour. You know what I said to him, Eric? Could you make it 10? <laughs> Gotta said, ask. Can I make it 10? I just go for your job for 8,000 hours. This law from 8,000 hours is a lot of money. I said, sir, I need the money. It's twenty-seven dollars or $28,000 to go to that school. So may his soul rest in peace. He passed away about 15 years ago, but he made it 10. And now I'm in that law firm working on the People's Express merger with Continental Airlines. I spent the entire summer in that law firm and you got 8,000 hours during the day. By the way, this is before you even started law school, right? Before I started law school. Now you got time and But let me tell you what it did to me though, okay? You got time and a half. Yep. And so it's making, you know, $12, you know, at night, sorry, 15. And then on the weekends, you got two times. It's making $20 an hour on a weekend. So I left there with about $18,000, which helped me get through the first year. But it also, I hated every goddamn minute of that. And when I got out of there, I said, what the hell am I doing in law school? I shouldn't be in law school. This sucks. I don't want to do this for a living. So now I'm at law school. I come home Thanksgiving. My parents don't know the difference between Hartford Law School and Harvard Law School. They honestly have no idea. They just, my son's going to be a lawyer and they think that's great. I walk into the house. I tell my mother, I hate law school. I want to quit. And I really did. I was going to finish this semester and then see if I could transfer over to Harvard Business School or get a job. And then my mother pulls the full-on guilt, like five-stage, you know, grand mal seizure guilt. She goes into berserkness. I said, okay, forget it, forget it. So I finished law school. I worked the last two years of law school to find myself a job at Goldman Sachs, which I did. So yeah, you already knew you didn't want to be a lawyer. So did you go go into Goldman as a lawyer or you went in as- No, no, I went into Goldman as an investment banker and got my ass fired. So I started 31 years ago, August 14th, 1989. Mm -hmm. I got fired from Goldman Sachs on February 1st, 1991. Okay. So So my first 18 months as a professional sucked. Now, why did I get fired? I got fired because I sucked at that job. And this is a cautionary tale to young people listening to this. Do not take the job that you think is cool, that you're trying to impress your friends. You got to take the job that you think you can do. I couldn't do that job, but it was a cool job. It was investment banking. It was real estate that was super hot. That was like going to work at Facebook today. And I wanted to be that cool guy that went to the cocktail party at the Harvard Law School, that famous cocktail party, Pound Hall. Well, what are you doing next year? I want to say, hey, I'm, I got that, you know, I'm working at Goldman Sachs, $110,000 a year, yeah. which was like a lot more than 65 grand, right? And, and I thought that was the greatest thing and it was the stupidest thing. So the cautionary tale for people, don't take the job you think is cool. You got to take the job that you think you're going to be good at. And so now I'm fired from there and I'm hustling now to go find another job. One of my buddies calls me, remember there are no cell phones back then. So I've got a payphone at Grand Central and pumping quarters into, yeah. I'm giving out the payphone. I'm in yeah. the booth. Phone's ringing. My buddy calls me. Says, "Hey, there's a job open at at Goldman Sachs." I said, "Are you kidding me? Are you kidding me?" He said, "Yeah, it's on a 28th floor. It's a sales and training job, and that's probably better suited for your skill set." So now, cautionary tale number two: Don't burn any bridges. Yep. When John Kelly fired my ass from the White House, I didn't burn the bridge. Him and I have become close personal friends. Mm-hmm. Now, the Trump thing is a totally different matter. We talk about that. That's more political. Yeah. But you know, John Kelly. He's a good man. He's a four-star general, gold star family member. He fired me. I shook his hand. Well, the guy that fired me in 1991, I shook his hand. I called him. 
I said, hey, there's a job open upstairs. Would you be willing to recommend me for that job? And he said, yeah, you'd be actually good at that job. You recommended for the job, I got the job. So now I got fired from Goldman on February 1st. I got rehired on March 28th. Nice. And now I get a call from personnel. And the personnel lady, they gave me an $11,000 severance check on February 1st. Yeah. I said, hasta la vista. On the 28th of March, the lady's calling me. She's so glad that you got rehired here. We're just going to mark you down as an interdepartmental transfer. You never have to tell anybody you got fired. Not on a podcast, 35 years. It doesn't matter. You're just going to say interdepartmental transfer. I said, oh, that's great. She said, can we get the $11,000 check back? I said, NFW, I already spent the money. I'm paying off school debt. I'm buying new threads. No way. You can tell everybody on planet Earth I got fired. I can care less. So that's, you know, and now I'm at Goldman. I'm hustling yeah. at Goldman. I'm growing a business. And then I leave at 96, start my own company. So yeah, so what were you doing when you went back to Goldman? What did you end up working on there? What was the new position that you saw through to 1996? So, so I'm at the I'm high net worth. I'm raising okay. money in the private wealth management division. I'm teamed yeah. up with a guy that became my partner in business, a phenomenal guy. His name was Andrew K. Bozar Jr. He was from a middle-class family. His dad was a farming equipment seller in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. Mm-hmm. And we had a great time together, him and I. He's now retired, but but he, he's, he was probably like, I think he's probably 60, 45, eight years older. But he was a great mentor, a great friend. His father worked at Alice Chalmers, I think. And it was from like Hillsdale, Milwaukee or something like that. That's awesome. And so 1996 comes around and you leave to start Oscar? Is that? I did. I started Oscar with Andy Bozart. And so that was a play on our name. So it was B-O-S- S-C-A-R, and so we dropped the B and we called it Oscar. So it was Bozart and Scaramucci, arguably the worst name in financial services history, but that's fine. I mean, you know, people were asking me if we had an Uncle Oscar. You know, it did, it did the name sucked, but it was fine. You know, yeah. that was my first business. We've learned a lot. There's Whatever's in a name is what you put into it. How, whatever you create, yeah. the brand you create and around it. What I found it. fascinating is that this insurance company, Oscar, became like a pretty vibrant yeah. insurance company. You know what yeah. I mean? So, you could have set the stage for that, on, you know, even subconsciously, that brand was already there and now they feel comfortable yeah. with it. It's already there with the Oscars, though, too. You know, I tried to buy Oscar.com, but it was already owned by the uh, Oscars. Yeah, fair enough. And so with an Oscar, was that also wealth management and private wealth or was it? Yes, it was a wealth management company. Exactly right. It was an RIA yeah. and our business, a registered investment advisor. Got it. And so saw that out for how many years? Like what, what kind of happened next? How so was it starting your first business? We worked on that for five years. We were in a bull market. We made very decent money. I was a game changer because now we're running our own business. And so it was a little bit more complicated, but it was very, very lucky because we were in the bull market. Right. Bull market of the 90s catapulted us to great success. We had a billion, we had probably $1.1 billion under management when we sold the company to Newberger Bourbon six weeks after 9-11. Wow. So now I'm 37 years old. I've had this transformative event from a wealth perspective. And uh, I'm a hungry guy. I went to go work at Newberger Berman. And then I worked from Newberger Berman. I worked at Lehman Brothers. When Lehman Brothers acquired Newberger Berman. And then in 2005, at the age of 41, I started Skyward. And so what, and so what caused you to want better to name? What caused you to want to leave at 41? Well, I think what happens to you, everybody's built differently. But if you are an entrepreneur and you've tasted entrepreneurship, the exhilaration and the anxiety, all the pain, yeah. all of the upside, all the downside, you're a little bit of an adrenaline junkie. You're sort of hooked to it. 
Yep. And so Lehman Brothers is a very well-managed place. It was unfortunate that it went out of business, but in my opinion, it wasn't any worse managed than the other banks that survived. It was right. just a lot of technical reasons that ended up going out of business. You said but it. Luck plays a big part. There was probably just luck, a little bit of timing luck, on the balance sheet, the wrong bad debt. 100%. Luck plays a big part. Timing, as we know, it's not just luck. It's also timing and all those other things. And so Lehman goes out of business. And I always tell kids this too. I want you to think about this. If you had a crystal ball in 05, yeah. I'm leaving Lehman Brothers. I start Skybridge on March 7th, 2005. It's 15 years old now. Yep. But I've got the crystal ball out and one of the largest investment banks in the world with a storied 146-year legacy is going to go out of business, but lowly Skybridge is going to survive the global financial crisis and go on to $10 billion under management. Who would have believed that yep. from the sorcerer if she was reading me my tarot card, yep. right? Yep. And so, so, you know, I mean, again, you've got to work hard. you got to prepare for the worst, pray and hope for the best. And then if you're an entrepreneur, you got to roll. They yep. adapt and pivot. you got to roll. you got to not worry. The number one thing, which is super hard to do, trust me, it's still hard for me to do to this day, but I'm way better at it now than I was 30 years ago, is what other people think of you. Eric, it is absolutely none of your business, you know, yep. and because if you can build your life up like that, you have a great life. Yep. And never was that more true than when I was in the White House getting my ass kicked in the White House. <laughs> Even before I got fired, they had the Benny Hanna knives out. They were carving me up on every late night show, you know, yep. with people impersonating me, this, that, and the other thing. Okay, no problem. You got to have the right sense of humor. You got to be able to roll with that stuff, you know? I don't know if I actually got to tell you, but I was actually in the audience when you were on Bill Maher. <laughs> I actually got a friend called me. He's like, I got tickets to Bill Maher tonight. I want to come down. I went. Okay. You were interviewed on the Bill first Maher. time I was. I've been on a couple of yeah. times. It was the first that time. That was the night that David Frum was yelling at me, right? He was no, telling me and that I, I grew up. And I have made peace with each other. No, and I grew up pretty liberal. And I was like, you know what? As someone, you know, you were still involved with, I think you were still involved with the campaign. And it was, I was like, I agree with everything this guy's saying. I think that. Well, maybe I, I was still trying to be, I, I had gotten fired from the White House. I was still yeah. trying to be supportive of the president. Right. That's what, yeah. You know, well, you know, he was loony, but he didn't go full-blown loony tunes. You know, I right. was like, okay, I'm going to do the best I can. Yeah. I, and I, as I said to Bill that night, I did something fireball. I made a mistake with a reporter. Yeah, I said something really fucking funny about Steve Bannon, but yeah, I shouldn't have said it. it was inappropriate. I mean, but I think the reporter who grew up, he's an Italian kid from Long Island, whose father worked with my dad in construction. Yeah. I didn't think he was going to run to the fucking CNN and yeah. like, you know, do that to me. I yeah. said, okay, my God, you're really going to do this? I'm not going to get fired. Yeah. By the way, I deserve to be fired because I trusted you. Don't do that. We could have a great relationship. I could help you here. He yeah. went and got me fired. I should probably send him a bottle of champagne at this point because you know, getting my ass fired probably saved my career, right? See, that's where yep. luck comes involved, right? Yep. But I was on Bill Moore's show being very honest about it, yep. being very open. And, you know, this is the benefit of some pain that comes in your life. The silver lining of my firing is I'm, I'm friends with Bill. I was, just, I was just texting him last night about the Met sale. We both own a piece of the Mets, you know? Oh, nice. I know Colbert now. I know Seth Meyers. All these yep. guys were picking on me, and I, I could care less. Become my yeah, friend. as you said, not taking yourself seriously and not caring what people think is important. Well, if you haven't seen any of my videos or of my performance on Big Brother, I just need everybody to know on this podcast, I take myself very seriously, okay? I'm, I'm a very serious person. I mean, give me a break. You yeah. got to live, live your life the way Mel Brooks said. You know, relax. None of us are getting out of here alive. You're so, not 
allow yourself to get taken over with your self-importance. Yeah. Great reference because he was in, a, in Los Angeles a lot of the time and we're standing outside a restaurant. I think when I first moved out here 12 years ago with my cousin, my cousin's in entertainment. Mel Brooks comes walking out of the restaurant. My cousin looks at him and goes, uh, I'm sorry, Mr. Brooks. I just have to say, I really love your work. And Mel Brooks looks at him and just goes, oh, you have terrible taste and walks away. <laughs> it's like just a perfect, no hesitation. Oh, that, that sounds like Mel Brooks, but I mean, yep. he's got some great aphorisms. You lived yep. in 95, not taking yourself too seriously. Yeah? yeah, exactly. So, all right. So you start building Skybridge. Take me through, I guess it was about, you, you started getting involved with politics. Like you, you went to law school with Obama. You started getting involved with politics. Was it when Obama ran or? Well, no, I got involved with politics, the Rudy Giuliani campaign. This okay. Was in 1989. Mm-hmm. And so I, I made a decision. I was in investment banking at the time, yep. but I made the decision to do that because it was helpful to me, I thought, in terms of growing my network. So it wasn't overly political. It was more practical. I was like, okay, I didn't grow up in a country club. I never hit a golf ball, never swung a tennis racket. How am I going to break into this network? Yes, I have a Harvard Law degree, but I'm 25 years old. No one knows who I am. And so I wrote a $250 check to Rudolph Giuliani. He ran for mayor in 1989 unsuccessfully. Uh-huh. And weirdly, that was good luck for me. You know, it was bad luck for the city because the city kept going down the toilet. Yep. Like it's, it's back in the toilet again, but it was doing quite well as a result of him and Mayor Bloomberg. But yep. you got you got to take you back there. He loses. Now I'm in his office and he's helping me build my network. He's calling people, meet this young kid. He's a bright kid from Harvard. He's at Goldman. And of course, I helped him in 1993. And then I helped him again in 97. Mm-hmm. And obviously that led to 2001. And obviously he left after 9-11. He had probably one rough year as mayor, but the last three months as mayor were legendary. I mean, he was really trying to help and heal the city. And he was really, you know, he had unbelievable leadership skills during that period of time. I and mean, we can talk about him today. I choose to remember Mayor yep. Giuliani from the 1990s and the early 2000s. I, yep. you know, what he's doing today, I disagree with, but he disagrees with me. And, you know, I yep. hope we'll be friends after this because I really love the guy. He was a very, very helpful in rebirthing this city, which is unfortunately now has to have another rebirth. Yep. Makes sense. And so I'd like to know the kind of the time frame from that. So you worked with Giuliani on his different campaigns. Then what took you into presidential? And then when did you make this switch, so to speak? Like you're working on... Obama and Hillary, and then somehow end up involved in the Trump campaign. What happened yeah, there? So, so that's good because I mean that's what happens here when you get oppo, right? People write all kinds of nonsense about you. So, yeah. I wrote a check to Hillary Clinton. You can yeah. find it. It's a two thousand dollar check. One of my business colleagues said, "Hey, I need you to write this check." I wrote the check. I was apolitical. Yeah, like Trump, like President Trump. He wrote checks to Schumer. He wrote checks to Kamala Harris. He wrote checks to different people because. You know, if you're in business, you're helping out these politicians that you like. I was fairly agnostic from a partisan perspective. Yep. I was, you know, Rudy Giuliani, for that matter, was an Italian-American to yep. me more than he was a Republican. Yep. Then I got involved in the Republican stuff. And and then I should point this out. David Axelrod got this when I did his podcast. If you were in a union on Long Island, the unions were controlled by the Republicans. Joe Margiotta control those unions. And so what was my dad? He was a Republican. Yeah. And so when I registered to vote, I said, hey, Pops, I'm registered to vote. Who, what, what party am I? Voting? You're a Republican. I said, I'm fucking Republican. I'm a Republican. You know, I didn't have any ideological notion of it, but this is what happens. You know, if you're a Yankee fan, you stay a Yankee fan. Yep. If you're a 
Met fan, guess what? I suck. I'm a Met fan. I also own a piece of the team. This team's brutal, you know? Yeah. But, and it's been brutal to me for 45, 50 years. It's a house of pain, you know? So what do you do? When you have sons, you make them Met fans too, so they can suffer alongside you. It's part of it. <laughs> That's how you do it. But yes. you're in it together. Yes. You have to be, you have to walk out of the stadium dejected with fellow people that share your DNA. What's the sense of it, right? Yeah. So, but, but, you know, listen, I mean, I'm a, I'm a Republican. And now I get a call from one of my buddies. Do you remember Barack Obama? I'm like, no. Okay, he gave the speech in 2004 at the such and such. And he did. I don't know. I'm a Republican. I didn't, I didn't see the speech. Yeah, he's, uh, he won the senatorship in Illinois. You're a dummy. We used to play basketball with him in the gym at Harvard. He was a couple of years behind us. And he's running for president. I'm going to be on his campaign. Will you give us a check? Sure. Yeah. I've never come to the fundraiser. Okay, great. University Club, July 2007. I walk in, I get a check in my pocket in my suit. I mean, we're all dressing at home now. I used to wear suits and shit. Yeah. Right? Check in my pocket. I said, hey, Senator Obama. I said, listen, I said, we didn't really know each other that well in law school. I said, but I got a big check in my pocket. And so I want to tell everybody that you and I were great friends in law school. Are you cool with that? As I'm about to hand you the check. And then he says, doesn't miss a beat. He looks at me and says, I'll tell you what, if you double the amount of the check, we can take it right back to Hawaii. How's that? Does that work for you? You know, because he lived in Hawaii, right? We're taking it back to high school. And I looked at him, and he has an incredible smile, Barack. Whatever you like Barack Obama, you don't like Barack Obama. Okay, I'm a fan of Barack Obama. He has a smile like Jack Kennedy's. He has the best smile in American politics since Jack Kennedy. And so he lights up the room with a smile. I double the amount of the check. You know, and then, you know, when I had a small check to Hillary Clinton, I did have a couple of big checks to Barack Obama. Uh -huh. But, you know, now he's president and I'm still a Republican and I'm in love with some of the business policies. So I returned to my Republican roots, you know. So, but again, a moderate I was a Mitt Romney. Before I went with President Trump, I was with Jeb Bush. So these are not like, you know, lunatic Republicans or anything. They're like moderate, common sense, policy oriented wonkish Republican. I've heard a lot of my liberal friends saying, wouldn't it be great if Romney was running or Jeb had stayed or something? <laughs> well, they would have never had, you know, remember this is, these are waves that hit the shore. Right. And in the 2016 wave, there were angry people in our country. You know, ultimately the economic policies that got us out of the last crisis, it created a lot of economic anxiety and a lot of separation of wealth in the country. Yep. And so movements like the Bernie Sanders movement or the Donald Trump movement were born from that anger and born from that anxiety. The Brexit was born from that. Yep. So, you know, we live and learn, you know, and now we sit here and Trump still has 40-ish percent of the vote and could win the election because there's a great culture war going on. Yep. And Americans don't like seeing their cities set on fire and they don't like seeing graffiti and murder rates going up in New York and people getting killed in the street and graffiti everywhere. People don't like that. Yep. And so you have a great call, even though he is a threat to the institutions of our democracy and he's telling 20,000 lies, yep. you have people that will equivocate and vote for him because of the culture war that's going on. Yep. So, From a pragmatism standpoint, it's shocking that it would be close, but when you think about the emotional aspect of what's going on right now, then it's not so shocking and people run with their emotion. So how did that phone call go? Like, I know you were working with, as you said, Jeb Bush, then he dropped out of the race. How did you end up jumping on board with Trump? Did you know Trump before? I did. I, you know, it's a sort of a fun story. 
I had breakfast with him the morning after the last apprentice went out. We were sitting in his office and he was telling me, yeah, that's done. I was great. Did you see me on TV last night? I said, no. Well, you were the only one that didn't see me on TV. That's kind of, I mean, the ratings were off the hook. They were fantastic. But I'm done with that now. I'm going to run for president. I laughed. Yeah. So you're not running for president. You're at 2% in the polls. You're not running for president. No, you're like everybody out, Scaramucci. I'm going to run for president. I'm going to go right to the top of the polls. Be up there. And I'm going to win the presidency. You'll see. And I got this guy hired and that guy hired. And I was like, okay. I said, well, I'll tell you what. What are you announcing? I'm not sure. I'm doing a little bit of research on it. He said, okay. Well, if you announce for president, invite me to the announcement. He said, well, I want you to work for me. You're good on TV. You're a Republican. You know, I worked with him on the Mitt Romney campaign. Uh -huh. I said, well, I'm already with Scott Walker. I said, Scott's going to come out of the race likely, and I'm going to roll over to Jeb Bush. I said, so if you, if you knock out Scott Walker and you knock out Jeb Bush, then call. And that's exactly what he did, and I went to go work for him. That's awesome. way, I don't that's demonize the president. I happen to like him. As a rock on tour, I liked him on the campaign plane. I liked having conversations with him. He's an entertaining guy. Yep. He just should not be president. He's not fit for the office of the presidency of the United States. He doesn't have the skill set, the managerial skill set, the intellectual curiosity. He doesn't have the policy wonkishness necessary to be the president of the United States. And he's yep. also an angry MF, and so he goes off on people. You shouldn't be attacking housewives and television hosts on your Twitter feed, you know? Yeah. It's, it's silly. Yeah, no, agreed. It, it, we were, another topic that came up recently was the idea of like, we, you never realize how much power the president could have because most presidents never abuse that power. They right. honored the office so much, they would never just start writing executive orders just to circumvent, you know, checks and balances. And I think it's a shame what's going on. And I hope that the country's smart enough to reject it. And even though I'm a Republican, I will be voting for, for Joe Biden. I mean, you have to, you have an institutional threat now to the democracy and it's a slippery slope, you know? Agreed. Yeah, I, I'm similar to you. I don't like the fiscal policies and the sort of eat the rich, as people are saying, the hashtag. I think mm -hmm. that's got its own dangers. I've been to Cuba. Right. I've seen how extreme that can get. But yeah. I also, like, from just the institution standpoint, I don't think there's really a choice. So what's next for you? You know, what, what's going oh, on? I'm back, I'm back at Skybridge. I'm working. I got my, I was doing great. If we had this podcast on March 1, I would have said I'm back at Skybridge the last three years. We've grown our assets. We've got a great revenue run. And now we're getting hit again. You know, we were down 24 in March very rough period of time. We're only down 16 now. So we made eight points back. You know, we're, we're up 11 from March, but the way the math works, right? If you go, right. you take a dollar and you take it down 76 cents, you got to make 30 cents to get you back to whole. You know what I mean? I mean, 30%, yep. not 30 cents. So, yep. but we're, we're, we're clawing our way back. You know, some people left. What happens when you have bad performers in my business? People fire. Yep. Long-term oriented people don't. I always tease people. Everyone's a long-term investor, Eric, until they have short-term losses. Yeah. But they have short-term losses, they start running for the door. It's stupid. You say, my old boss said you should be smart enough to buy something and just stupid enough to stay in it, even if the shit is hitting the fan, you know? Yep. And, no, and by the way, that's how I got to be where I am. I mean, am I the wealthiest? No, but I've grown up in a blue-collar family, son of a crane operator. I've done pretty well. Yeah. And primarily just staying disciplined and staying in investments. Not getting juked out by the GFC, the global financial crisis, COVID-19, or anything that came prior to those things. 
Yeah, it's my, my dad's a real estate guy and his favorite line in real estate, the one thing he's learned is he should have never sold anything. It just, you know, over time, over a long period of time, it just continues yeah. to appreciate. Well, I mean, that, and that's Buffett's strategy and that has been my strategy and it has proved to be a great strategy, you know, and, yeah. and even, you know, I own a piece of the Mets and I'm so happy that one, I was had the courage enough to buy it and number two, I said, I'm long it because I mean, that, that asset will now trade at a very high premium. Yep. Even in COVID-19, people Which love these. Yeah. yeah, no, it's good to see it back. Well, last question for me, I always like to end. What would be your yep. piece of advice for a person, you know, just getting started, looking to pursue yep. their dreams? You said something to me a few months ago that stuck with me, but I'll let you go first on that one. Well, what did I say? Stuck with you. Is this you said, yeah, you said stay on offense, no matter what's going on. Stay, yeah. You said you have it written on your bathroom. Memory. No, I remember that. I remember that the last time we were on, I said, you got to stay on offense. Right? I said it every morning I have it. SOO, stay on offense. But, you know, here's the thing I would say to you, which is a corollary to that. And it's also similar to what your dad said about not selling. And I don't know how to say this with more emphasis for younger people, but you really have to live your life with no fear. You have to not worry what other people think. You have to say, okay, I want to be a performance artist. Then you got to go become a performance artist. I want to become an actor in Hollywood. Well, you know what? Then you got to go do that, and then you have to burn the boats behind you. Okay, you can't have a toll over here, and let me play with this for a few days, and let's see what happens. You got to say, no, 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 that's exactly what I'm doing, and I'm doing that no matter what. And so, I would tell my younger self, why did you have so much fear? You know, because what was the big deal anyway? I mean, if I had to go back to living in a apartment with a rabbit ear television and a white T-shirt, drinking a six-pack of Schlitz, that's how I started. Is it really that big of a deal? Yeah. But in the meantime, if you're going for it, you're going for it, and you you have that exhilaration of going for it, then it's the, the greatest thing ever. So that's the biggest thing I would tell people. It's, it's, it's sort of what your dad said, you know, passionate about real estate, don't sell anything. I'm passionate about investing. I understand the stuff, very long-term fundamentals. Stuff sucks right now, but it's going to get better. When it does, people that sold it are going to be very disappointed. Yep. Like, what the hell, why did I sell that, you know? Yeah, definitely. Yeah, I'd say in principle, you definitely don't want to sell at the bottom and buy at the top. That's usually not the best investment. A hundred percent. Well, it's good to see you again. You look good. Yeah, I'm loving you. Your, you. You beat me on a room raider, you know, because I have too many virtual books. <laughs> I couldn't put all these goddamn books on the shelf. I, I actually want to, I'm trying to build that. I got to figure that out too. I'm, you got all that Zen shit behind you. I also yeah. noticed the tequila bottle. I mean, you know, you're yeah. going. I'm giving you, I'm giving you a high room raider. I appreciate that. <laughs> well, thanks, Anthony. It's great right, to see you well. and appreciate it. All right, let's Talk stay in touch. Okay? I'm a huge fan. Absolutely. Talk to you soon. Hawk Media is your outsourced CMO and marketing team. We'll dive into your business for free, identify opportunities in your marketing strategy, then get you teamed up with individual experts all month to month and a la carte. Whether you're looking for a Facebook advertiser, a web designer, or a fractional CMO, we can help you drive growth for your business. We've successfully grown over 2,500 brands, and we're here to help you too. No matter your goal, we've got you covered. To learn more, visit hawkmedia.com. That's hawk with an E, media.com. You've been listening to Hawk Talk. To ensure you never miss an episode, subscribe to the show in your favorite podcast player. If you're listening in Apple Podcasts, we'd love for you to give us a quick rating for the show. Just tap the number of stars you think this podcast deserves. Thank you so much for listening. Until next time.